Uh, Brooke and I would feed and bathe and discipline them. Uh, they would pray the way we prayed. Uh, our daughters would often have pretend conversations on the phone the same way that uh, they heard us talk on the phone. It's a cute phenomenon that most parents notice at some point that your children imitate you, and that's because people are imitators. Um, uh, people resemble who they love and who they respect, either consciously or unconsciously. And today, uh, since we just finished a section in Ephesians, before we launch into the new section, I just wanted to take uh, uh, just a one-week break from Ephesians to remind you of a very important truth from Psalm 115, a very important truth about our worship, and that is this, you become like what you worship. Uh, In his book, We Become Like What We Worship, Gregory Beale puts it this way, what you revere, you resemble either for your ruin or restoration. The fact is, God has created human beings as imaging creatures. He's created us to reflect Him. But if we don't consciously commit ourselves to reflecting Him, we'll end up reflecting something else in the creation. Uh, It's not possible for us to remain neutral on this issue. We're going to either reflect our Creator or we're going to reflect something in the creation. And so, the question to ask yourself this morning as we go through Psalm 115 together is, who or what do I reflect? Uh, Who or what do I actually revere and worship? Let's read Psalm 115 together, and I'll show you how the psalmist expresses it. In Psalm 115, the psalmist says this, "'Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory, because of Your loving kindness, because of Your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases.' Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed to the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord. But the earth He has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. This psalm breaks down into four sections, and the first section is in verses 1 and 2. Again, the psalmist says, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to Your name give glory because of Your loving kindness, because of Your truth. The composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, often put the initials SDG at the end of his compositions, and uh, George Friedrich Handel did the same thing. And those, uh, those initials really are for a Latin saying, soli deo gloria, which 
in, translated into English means, to God alone be the glory. And Psalm 115 verse 1 is one of the many scriptural passages uh, that are the inspiration for that expression. God alone deserves all glory. And we see in the psalmist here a desire for God to glorify Himself in verse 1. And it's interesting because the psalm actually begins with a renunciation of glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. We're not competing with God for His glory. Uh, it's as if the psalmist is saying this, Lord, we want Your name to be glorified because of Your unfailing love, because of the light of Your truth. Other nations are taunting us for believing in You, but we don't want the glory for our own deliverance. We want You to be glorified, so show off Your power and Your glory in the way You deliver us uh, in front of the nations. The psalmist is consumed with a desire to see God's name praised and glorified. And then the second section of the psalm you can find in verses 3 through 8. In verse 3, the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. So, in contrast to the gods of the other nations when the psalmist wrote this, uh, our God is not one of the polytheistic gods in a bigger pantheon of gods. He's not the amplified humanity or the superhero-like gods of the Greeks and Romans. No, He is deity. He's the creator of everything in the cosmos who does whatever He pleases. In the Old Testament, there are these beautiful moments uh, where God opens up the eyes of Gentiles to how glorious He is. And uh, for instance, after God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said about the God of Israel. Uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar relating his own story after God brought him back to his sanity from the discipline that he had imposed on Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4, but at the end of that period of, of discipline, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Our God is the ruler over heaven and earth and space and time and history. And by way of contrast, the Gentiles who this psalmist feels are mocking him and, and Israel's God, the Gentiles in contrast, well, who are they serving? What are they worshiping? Well, they're just worshiping idols that are the work of their own hands. Verse 4, their idols, in contrast to our God, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. The idols have all the proper sensory organs fashioned on them or painted on them, but they can't do anything with them. The whole thing is a scam. They're the imaginations and creations of sinful human hands, and they keep entire cultures and peoples in bondage. And here's the key verse to the psalm, Psalm 8, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Those who make deaf, mute, and blind idols will themselves become spiritually deaf, spiritually mute, and spiritually blind. In fact, 
The very fact that they're knowingly fashioning an idol shows that they're already deep into the process of becoming deaf and blind to the spiritual realities around them. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in what's made, but the idol makers are turning from that. They're looking out at the cosmos, and they hear but they don't understand. They can see all that God has made, but they don't perceive. In their idolatry, they are becoming deaf and blind to who God is and His offer of reconciliation and forgiveness. And so, what verse 8 is getting at, brothers and sisters, is that what we revere, we worship. And there are a number of ways to understand worship in the Old Testament. Uh, Whenever you find worship language in the Old Testament, you always find uh, around it, in the verses that surround it, verbs that describe what that worship is like, and that helps us get our arms around understanding what true worship is. In the Old Testament, what people worship, they're often portrayed as serving, trusting in, hoping in, delighting in, treasuring. These are all worship, obeying. These are all the kinds of worship words that you find in the Old Testament. And in verse 8, the specific focus of this worship is that those who create these idols, they trust in these idols to deliver them. So, the, the focus of the psalmist here is what is it that you're trusting in to deliver you? What, are, what is it that you're trusting in to save you, to comfort you? And that would be both spiritually, what's going to save me, but even just physically, what will deliver me, what will comfort me in my hour of grief. That's the focus. And so, the psalmist, what he's doing in verses uh, 4 through 8 is he's exposing the foolishness of idolatry. But next, after exposing that foolishness uh, and the way that uh, pagans are trusting in idols that can't deliver them, in contrast to that, he's now going to give an exhortation to trust in the true God. Look at verse 9. Well, let's back up to verse 8. Those who make them, the idols, will become like them everyone who trusts in them, but in contrast, O Israel, trust in the Lord, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. See, the idolaters are putting their hope and trust in something that is obviously untrustworthy. Uh, The idols can't deliver people. They're only capable of accomplishing one thing, and that's making those who worship them like them, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. Uh, And that's because there's this rule of spiritual existence that none of us can escape. And it's this, that over time, you begin to become like what you worship. And unlike worshiping the untrustworthy idols, the psalmist is encouraging us to trust in the Lord. That's really what verses 9 through 11 are all about. The God of Israel is our help and protector. He will defend His people Israel, and He will also defend any Gentiles who fear and trust in Him. He keeps track of all those who trust Him and fear them, and He will bless them. That's verses 12 through 15. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed to the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Notice that there's not just an exhortation from the psalmist to trust in the true God. What the psalmist is trying to do, the psalmist assumes, and you can see this in other parts of Scripture, the psalmist assumes that we're putting our trust and hope somewhere, 
And so the psalmist isn't trying to stamp out uh, trust and hoping in other things outside of yourself. He's trying to redirect it to trusting in the true and living God. This, by the way, is the same thing we're trying to do as a church family with passions and desires. We're not trying to stomp out passions, but we are trying to redirect bad passions and evil desires so that we start desiring what God desires, and we start having a holy passion for the things that God loves. It's the same way with false worship, right? We're not trying to stomp out or put a lid on false worship. We do want to redirect that worship to the true and living God. But notice that there's not just this exhortation uh, to, well, you should trust in the God of Israel. Notice also along with the exhortation, the psalmist is giving a model for us of actually expecting. There's an expectation here that God will bless those who trust in Him. Uh, in other words, God is mindful of those who fear Him. Uh, the small and the seemingly insignificant uh, and the common, as well as those who are a big deal and are important and famous, whoever trusts God, uh, He will bless them. God is not an emotionally distant God who is uh, punitive and detached from His creation. He knows the exact number of hairs on your head. He keeps track of those who seem insignificant as well as those who are a big deal, and He blesses all from either category, from any class, who choose to fear Him. But in contrast uh, to the idols that the psalmist is exposing, he chooses not only to trust the Lord but depend on His grace and help. And then what the psalmist does is he ends with a doxology. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, this doxology, it does not jump off the page like a New Testament doxology from one of our apostles, but it is nevertheless a Hebrew doxology. Look again at verse uh, 16. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth He has given to the sons of man. The psalmist here is drawing a cosmological map and what he's saying is, heaven belongs to the Lord, but ruling the earth is a gift God has delegated to humanity. And you see that in the Genesis 1 account, right? God has delegated to mankind the high honor of ruling over the creation. Uh, that's a high honor that God gave mankind. And then the psalmist says, verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down to, into silence, but as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Now, this is important. Verse 17 is not a denial of life after death. What the writer is doing is creating a contrast between those who worship idols and those who worship the true God. Those who fashion idols uh, will go down to death and will be separated from God in eternity future. But we who worship the true and living God, we, can, we will continue worshiping Him in this life and also in the life to come. So, Psalm 115, it really breaks down into four sections. Each one of these sections has great nourishment for our souls. We see uh, a noble desire on the part of the psalmist for God to glorify Himself, complete in verse 1 with a renunciation of the pursuit of self-glory and vain ambition and the pursuit of our own fame, uh, which we need to turn from if we're going to glorify God in our own generation. That's healthy for us to hear. We also see the foolishness of idolatry exposed. We see the psalmist exhort us to trust in the Lord and then model having a healthy expectation that God will bless those who trust in Him. And then the psalm ends with a wonder doxology of praise 
to God about His uh, supremacy in heaven, and also the expectation that we who fear Him will go on worshiping Him in the life to come. Death won't end our relationship with God. It'll actually take it to the next level as we worship Him and see Him face to face, and as we're perfected, and then eventually given glorified bodies in the future. What I'd like to do, though, with the time that remains is really zero in on this spiritual dynamic in verse 8, that we become like what we worship. There are some implications for us here that are really, really crucial. The provocative language of the psalmist in verse 8, it forces us to look at salvation from a different angle than we're used to as American Protestants. See, in this psalm, Uh, The psalmist teaches us that the eternal destiny of our souls is not so much a matter of where we're going, but what we're becoming. Uh, He's teaching that heaven and hell are not so much a matter of location, but that salvation and damnation are a matter of what we're currently turning into, uh, which is, that's an important perspective. That's a different way of looking at it, but a very important one. If you worship a deaf and blind idol, you will slowly become spiritually deaf and spiritually blind. If you worship a false god who is cruel, over time, you yourself will become cruel. If you worship a false god who revels in sensual perversions, over time, you'll become enslaved to sexual sin. That's the way this works. That's the spiritual truth. Now, many of you know that I am a big, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. I love C.S. Lewis. And uh, in one of his books, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, Uh, I love C.S. Lewis, but I'm going to use a negative illustration here. There is a scene he has that has always been a little disconcerting to me. Uh, It's in his last book of the Chronicles, The Last Battle. Uh, The main characters make it into Aslan's country, which is sort of like heaven, and in there they find a Calormene soldier who's been devoted to the worship of the false god Tash, and he's portrayed as a, he's a noble pagan who's done good deeds, and those end up being credited to him, even though he did them in the service of Tash, uh, they're credited to him as if he had done them to the Christ figure, Aslan. Um, And one of the problems I have with that is that in the books, Tash is portrayed as a cruel god who is actually animated by a demon. And yet, uh, this noble Calormene soldier, he supposedly devoutly and sincerely worships Tash, but he doesn't become cruel like Tash. And where it's jarring for me is this. Most of the illustrations in Lewis's literature they ring true. They're they're true artistic representations of spiritual reality and and what Scripture teaches. But in this particular illustration, I think Lewis got it wrong. Psalm 115 uh, says that we become like what we worship. We become like the gods we devoutly serve and obey. And what we're becoming, you can work on this backwards, what we're becoming right now also has a way of exposing what we were truly worshiping. Uh, You can make a public profession of faith in Jesus and attend church on Sundays, but have a heart that's far from Him and be worshiping something else in creation. You can give uh, the allegiance of your heart and your loyalty and love uh, to other things. And to the casual observer who doesn't know you very well, uh, it may look like you're a true follower uh, of Jesus, but those who live uh, most closely with you will notice that slowly you're becoming like the created thing you worship. 
Now, that's the bad news, but there's also good news. And it's not so much in this psalm, but the rest of the Bible would teach this, that, that this same dynamic, it works in the opposite direction. If you'll give true worship to God and focus on Him, eventually you will become more and more like Him in terms of imitating His moral image. You see, we were created in the image of God to be reflectors of Him, to reflect His glory. Maybe you could think of it this way, like the sun and the moon, right? The sun gives off light, the moon reflects that light. And so it is with us in our relationship with God. God emanates glory, but then as people made in His image, we reflect back that glory like the moon. And if we ever think that we're the ones who are giving off light, the light of our own glory and truth, then we've lost our way spiritually. Or maybe another way you could think of it is like a mirror. We were created like mirrors to reflect the image of God. But in our rebellion, we've taken the mirror-like aspect of who we are, and we've pointed it at absurd things like money and pleasure and power and success and fame and romantic love, and we've looked to all these other things. We're reflecting all the wrong things instead of reflecting our Lord. And this is important because back in the Garden of Eden, we pointed our mirrors at God. We reflected Him. But when we fell into sin, we didn't cease being imagers. We didn't cease having a mirror-like quality to our beings. We just pointed our mirrors at other things. But when you reorient your mirror to Christ, the image of God that has been bent in you begins to be restored. Uh, I gave a negative illustration from C.S. Lewis, so now I have to give a positive one because I want to make sure he gets good press today from the pulpit. Um, uh, one of a, a beautiful picture of this, in my opinion, is the entire way he puts together the story of the voyage of the Dawn Treader. The ship, the Dawn Treader, is headed eastward towards Aslan's country, the end of the world. And as they sail closer to the country, the light becomes unbearable. It's like the sun is too big, and the, the, the reflection of the sun off the water is too intense, and they can't take it in. But as they're traveling closer to this light, they notice that the sea around them is no longer, it's no longer salt water. It's this sweet, fresh water that they can drink, but sweetness isn't the best way to describe it. They describe it in the book as drinkable light. And as they drink in this light, this amazing thing happens. They can see more light. They eventually find that even though the sun they're looking at in Aslan's country is larger than ours, they can stare at it without blinking because they can take in more light as they, uh, as they take in more light from drinking the water. It's this beautiful picture of the light of Christ helping us perceive more of who He is, and not in a way where we squint or turn away from His light, but we can take in more and more and more of it. Um, it's a beautiful picture of taking in the light. And then as you just think through the story, for those of you who know it, you have all these scenes where the light of the Christ figure, Aslan, saves people from themselves, right? It's the light of Aslan uh, who saves the ship from the nightmares in the, the dark islands. Um, he appears as if in bright sunlight to Edmund and to Caspian when their rivalry is about to get deadly on Deathwater Island. Uh, it's his bright, it's Aslan's bright but growling face that Lucy sees in the magic book when she's uh, 
taken over by a consuming desire for physical beauty, right? And it saves her from herself. All these illustrations are instances of the light of the Christ figure leading the characters to repentance and restoration. The drinkable light and the appearances of Aslan come together then to create this beautiful picture of sanctification in the Christian light, uh, life. As we drink in the light of who Christ is, we're enabled to see more of His light, and as the light of who He is breaks through to us, we turn from our sins and begin to imitate Him more and more. Uh, the Apostle John teaches us about this dynamic this way in 1 John 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We will become like Jesus. Why? In the end, because we see Him just as He is. The Apostle Paul elaborates on this reality with these words, 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, um, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will no, I will know fully just as I have been fully known. Uh, even with the gift of God's Word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, it is still as if when we gaze at Christ, uh, we're looking at Him through a mirror in a dimly lit room. But when we finally enter into Christ's presence and behold Him face to face, we will become fully like Him. Now, as I say that, because that's dealing with the reality, does that mean there's no hope for us in the present? Absolutely not. Far from it. Paul uses this same imagery in his next letter to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians, he says this about our present status as we look at Christ. He says, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, but we all with unveiled face uh, faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same spirit uh, and, and same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So, what goes on in our worship services and in our Bible studies is that we see Jesus. And the more of Him we see and embrace, the more we're shaped into His image. The process is beautiful, but it can feel agonizingly slow at times, uh, and it is complete incomplete until we see Him face to face. It won't be completed in this lifetime, but when we finally see Him face to face, we'll be fully like Him. And so, what this means for us is this. If you want to become more like Jesus, you have to look at Him. You have to take in the light of who He is by taking in what the Scriptures say about Him. Um, those are all the marks of uh, how we get to become like the one that we worship. So, if you want to become more like Jesus, the answer is to look at Him, love Him, trust Him, serve Him, obey Him. Uh, this is what we're trying to do here at Grace Fellowship Church. So, what shall we say then about applying this passage? How do we apply Psalm 115 to our lives? Well, I think before we can apply it, there is a diagnostic question we have to ask, but once we ask and answer this diagnostic question, then we can get to the three applications I see in it. So, first, the diagnostic question. The diagnostic question is this. If it's true that we become like what we worship, how do we know what we're really worshiping? I ask because people can be deceived, right? The Pharisees in Jesus' day, they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They searched the Scriptures daily to find eternal life in them, but then when eternal life in the form of Messiah came to them, they didn't accept Him. Uh, during the life of Jesus, there were hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices offered properly in the temple by millions of worshipers, and yet 
even though He was their Messiah, only uh, the, the people who recognized Him when He came only numbered in the hundreds, right? That's a pretty scary percentage. That's a pre- those are scary numbers to look at. Uh, so, if it's true that we can think we're following God and we can think we're worshiping God but still be far from Him, how would we know for sure what we're worshiping Him, that we're worshiping Him? Well, in the Bible, Again, there are a number of words for worship that help you understand what it means to worship. Words like trust, hope, serve, obey, treasure, and love. So, you can just make those into questions. What are you really trusting in to deliver you when the going gets rough? Where are you putting your hope? Who or what do you serve and obey? And whose opinion matters to you most? Uh, who or what do you treasure and love? If you can answer those kinds of questions honestly, they'll give you a good read on who or what you're really worshiping. Uh, so, that's the diagnostic question. But then in terms of application, uh, Psalm 115 verse 1, the first application would be this, Psalm 115 verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. As, images of, uh, as imagers of God who are glory mirrors, we can't reflect God's glory properly unless our mirror is pointed away from us, right? Like a mirror reflecting itself reflects nothing. So, we have to turn from this tendency within us to try and pursue our own glory, our own reputation, uh, the, the greatness of our own name. We got to turn from that if we're going to properly reflect God's glory. The glory is not to us or for us. The moon doesn't generate light. It reflects the light of the sun in the same way we don't, re- we don't generate our own glory. A mirror doesn't generate its own light. It only reflects the other light that's in the room. And so, we have to surrender our pride, our ambitions for the glory of our names if we're going to reflect God's glory excuse me, God's glory as His image bears. Uh, The second application is this. Not only do we have to turn from self-glory that comes naturally, we also have to turn from false worship. Now, here's the thing. In Psalm 115, the false worship comes in the form of worshiping actual idols. So, as an American Christian, you might think, well, that's not much of a threat, right? It's not much of a threat that I'm going to bow down to a statue of something. It, like, n- nobody in our church is putting up figurines of the gods on their mantles at home. And so, you might think, well, the kind of false worship th- that's in this psalm, there's not really much of a threat that me or, or my family is going to fall into that. The problem with that way of thinking, though, is that there's all kinds of idols people worship that don't have an image And the Bible is clear about that as well. In fact, in Ezekiel 14, uh, we hear this, uh, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Ezekiel, and this is what uh, Ezekiel 14 says, "'Then some of the elders of Israel came to me,' this is Ezekiel writing, "'and sat down before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "'Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts,' and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their own iniquity, should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his own iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their 
idols. In this particular case, the men who came to Ezekiel, they weren't worshiping Baal, they weren't worshiping false gods or idols, but God diagnosed that they had set up idols, there were created things that they loved more than Him in their hearts. And the New Testament confronts this way of thinking that as long as I'm not worshiping a statue of something, I'm not committing idolatry. The New Testament, uh, Jesus had to confront this over and over. For instance, let me give you some instances of Jesus confronting heart idolatries in the New Testament. Um, When Jesus is with the Samaritan woman at the well, she comes to the point where she is interested in eternal life through Him. And what happens next? What does Jesus say? Well, instead of leading her in a prayer of repentance and salvation, Jesus asks her to go call her husband. Now, I don't know about you, I kind of picture myself like there watching Jesus, like I'm one of His followers and I'm watching Him handle this. He gets her to the point where she wants to receive eternal life, and He says, go call your husband. And it's like, why are you changing the subject? We weren't even talking about that. But Jesus isn't changing the subject. He knows this woman. He knows her heart. He knows that she's already had five husbands, and the man she's living with currently, she's not even married to. She just careens from relationship to relationship to romantic relationship. And what it is is this. Romantic relationships are what she worships. She set up an idol of romantic relationships in her heart, and Jesus is putting His finger on the thing that she worships that keeps her from coming to the true and living God. Uh, And this is why later on you know what happens. She goes back and she tells the people in the village, you got to meet this man. He's, he, he told me everything I've done, right? And he, she uses this expression that it doesn't mean that uh, Jesus had a rap sheet with every, every single wrong thing that she had done. I think what she's saying, if you bring over the idea into English, what she's saying is, he sees through me. He sees through me. He sees what makes me tick, and He called me out on it, and that's what Jesus is doing. He does this in another, on another occasion with the rich young ruler, right? Uh, the rich young ruler asks Jesus how he can obtain eternal life, and what does Jesus say to him? Go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and also come follow me. And what do we do with the story? We, as Protestant Christians, we freak out because we think that Jesus is saying somehow you have to earn your salvation uh, by not only placing your faith in God, but also by giving away your money and possessions to the poor. That's not what's going on here. The rich young ruler loves his possessions, and he loves his position in life more than he loves God, to the point that when Israel's Messiah is asking him, I need you to leave the life you have carved out here in this town, and for the next few years, I need you to come follow me. When that happens, he won't follow. That's what's going on in the man's heart. Jesus is launching a cruise missile at this man's heart, and, and what makes him tick? He's putting his fingers on people's idols. And, and uh, in both cases, the wealth, the position, uh, the woman at the well with romantic relationships, there was no idol for that. There was no figurine that they had that represented that, that they were worshiping. They both thought they were worshiping the true God. Anything you treasure or delight in or serve more than God has become an idol. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, A man's God is that for which he lives for, for which he is prepared to give his time, his energy, his money, that which stimulates him and rouses him, excites him, and enthuses him. 
Christians can still struggle, even after we've come to Christ, with running back to the idols we had before we started following Him. Uh, And I believe that's actually one of the dynamics behind how the Apostle John ends his first letter. Has Has it ever bothered you? It used to bother me for years. Has it ever bothered you how John ends his first letter? He ends it by, this is, his, this is his conclusion, little children, guard yourselves from idols. I'm just like, what, guard you? And I used to think about it like John could have said, little children, guard yourselves from adultery. Little children, guard yourselves from greed. Like, like he could have used any, he just wanted to give one more exhortation to the people. No, 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 I don't think that's what's going on. The Apostle John sees that we can still run back to the altars of the things we worshiped before we came to Christ, and he's telling, he's writing to a group of believers, little children, guard yourselves from running back to the former idols you worshiped. Or maybe here's another way that we could say it. When we think about, again, this, this illustration of us being mirrors that were meant to reflect God's glory. The funny thing about mirrors is that sometimes they have to be adjusted, right? Uh, many of you have been over to our house, and you know that we have a long driveway that has a deceptive curve in it. If you just eyeball it, it looks like it's straight, but it actually curves a little bit, and if you drive straight back, you'll go off into the grass or run over part of my fence, and, um, uh, and we always have to back out, right? And, and so, what's going on now is our, our son Grant has his driver's license, and so Grant and Brooke and I are all sharing vehicles. We're all different heights, and so every time I get in a vehicle to back out of my driveway, it feels like my mirrors have to be readjusted so that I can back out of my own driveway properly. Well, Uh, You have the same thing going on with us in the Christian life. Even after we come to Christ, our souls need constant readjusting. We can inadvertently, even unconsciously, begin to make romance or money or position or titles or success into an idol, and we need to be recalibrated regularly. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons the Lord set aside the first day of the week for us to come together and worship. It's because we need adjusting. I mean, think about it. We don't… think about the way we conceive of this service. We don't try to get our acts together Monday through Saturday and have a good week so that we can feel like we deserve to come into this place head held high because of our moral track record for the last week, and we have the right to worship here. No, 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 that's not how we do it. On the first day of the week, we come in here and worship, and we get our hearts readjusted to the reality of who God is and who we are and how we can best serve Christ. And then, having been readjusted, we can go out Monday through Saturday and follow Christ well. We recalibrate while we're here together to put our hope and trust in the Lord. We adjust from giving our hearts away to other treasures. We recalibrate our allegiances so that we can walk in a way that serves and obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, another application would be to grow in self-awareness of where your own heart idols are. What are the themes of your heart that you tend uh, to, to lose your way in, to confess those and to turn back to the living God? Jesus said it this way, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you point your mirror in the wrong direction, and then you insist on stubbornly clinging to your idols, you'll lose your soul. But if you'll lay down your idols and lose what you conceive of as your best life now for the sake of Christ, if you'll do that, you'll find eternal life. 
We were created to be dependent on God and trust Him. And when you surrender your life, God does this amazing thing. Often, He gives you right back that same life, but He wants you to serve you and represent Him in the unique uh, circle of relationships He has you in the unique career and job and place He has you in, and that's how He uses you. And so, a second application would be that we need to turn from our idols, the, the idols that so easily entangle us, and make sure that we recalibrate and turn our hearts back to the living God. And then there's one uh, final application, a third application, and it's this one. Look to Christ. Point your mirror at Christ by participating in public worship and in Bible study and in communing with Him in prayer. Regularly put the light of the truth of Christ in front of you with good books that help you, or blogs, or uh, podcasts, or sermons from other pastors that help you understand in a fuller way who Christ is. We become like what we worship, and that's not just a warning from Psalm 115. According to Scripture, the rest of Scripture, that's actually a happy promise that if we'll worship Christ, we become like Him. If you'll give yourself to the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll grow to be like Him. You'll grow to reflect His glory and His moral image but you can only reflect Him if you're looking at Him. And that's the most important application of all, really, from this psalm. Look to Christ as your great treasure. Trust in Him, hope in Him, obey Him, and you will increasingly become like Him. Let's pray.